mean to you to be carrying one of the most important roles in this world of, of feeding people? Um, well, we, ta- we don't take it for granted, and the consumer shouldn't take their food supply for granted. We've just gone through the last year and a half of not a lot of fun, right? We've heard the news of all the, the shortages, all the hyper, hyper buying, but we haven't had to hear about running out of food, running out of cereal, running out of meat, running out of milk. But we, we go back and the basic food groups that, that are coming from our fields that are grown here in North America, we, we're good. We're good. They're not stuck on a container ship out, outside of Los Angeles or anywhere. They're right on the shelves. They're on the highways right now being delivered. And, and we don't take that for granted, and consumers shouldn't take that for granted. You can't survive without it. It plays a part in almost everything we bring into our homes. It's agriculture. I'm Amy Flugsopt. In my 15-year career as a broadcast journalist, I've traveled the country, won awards, and have told the stories of everyone from presidential candidates to the neighbor next door. Now, I'm getting back to my farm girl roots to connect you back to where your food, fuel, fabric, and all of those items in between originated, the farm. Inside the Bullseye is a -a one-of-a-kind conversation that's designed especially for you, the consumer. Broadcasting from my home studio in Madison, Wisconsin, I'm Amy Flugsopt. Trust me, this isn't your grandfather's way of farming. As Americans, we have access to the best quality foods at the most affordable prices. It's something we often take for granted. Across the United States, there are about 2 million farms. 98% of them are operated by families, just like the Crave family. Today, we're going to take you to southeastern Wisconsin, where it only takes hours for fresh milk to be turned into delicious cheese. We dive into the legacy of the farm, world travels, and what they're learning from farmers all around the globe, how cheese is made, and the great sustainability efforts taking place. Joining us today are members of the Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese, a dairy farm based in Waterloo, Wisconsin. Debbie Crave is VP of Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese, and George Crave is president and cheesemaker of Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese. Thank you both so much for taking some time to join the conversation today and share your story. Thank you. Well, I know you guys have a fabulous story to tell, one that's been featured many, many times on national platforms, places like Good Morning America, Nightly News, just to name a few. And it's really a story that's rooted deeply in family. So let's talk about your family farm story. I can't wait to hear about this. Okay, sure. We, uh, it's a Crave family. That is our name, just not a marketing gimmick, some people think. Uh, we grew up in Beloit. Debbie and I both grew up in Beloit down the Illinois line, about an hour south of Waterloo, where we live now. Uh, my dad milked 35, 40 cows like about 60,000 farmers did in Wisconsin back in the late 60s and early 70s. And he sold the cows um, back in 74. We worked for a few neighbors. Make a long story short, we were able to start up again in 78 on a rented farm. Moved to Waterloo in December of 1980 
uh, with about 80 cows, 210 acres, Brother Charlie and myself. Brother Tom joined us in February of 81. And um, over the years, it's always kind of been, what next? What are we gonna do next? How do we get make it better? Okay, we're, we are okay right now, but always looking at the future, where do we have to be for the future? So we, we never said we're okay where we, what we're doing today. We always said, where do we have to be tomorrow or in five or 10 years from now? And that's really what's made us progressive and where we are today. Where we are today is we farm 3,000 acres, the Cray Farm, Cray Brothers Farm, we farm 3,000 acres, milk about 2,000 cows three times a day on two different sites, and then we pipeline that milk underground over the cheese factory where we build a cheese factory 20 years ago where we make fresh mozzarella, mascarpone cream cheese, queso Oaxaca, braided string cheese, and of course, Wisconsin's favorite, famous squeaky cheese curds. And just a little more, yeah, a little more for the family story. It started with two brothers, three brothers, then went to four brothers. Mm -hmm. Then the next generation started coming in and we had two nephews and our son join the partnership. So seven family members as owners, but another six family members that work in the business, either at the farm side or the cheese side. Our niece Beth is a quality assurance director. Our son Brian is a licensed cheesemaker, for example, and uh, many other great uh, family members that are involved. So we're really a family business and very, very proud of it. George, I'm really curious to know, you, you worked in the dairy industry and then you kind of got out and then you got back into it. What was that pull that you felt to bring you back to the dairy industry? Because we all know it's not an easy one to work in. Well, we were fortunate to meet a college professor back in 78 that wanted to have a small farm. He always liked the registered Holsteins, uh, the pure, the purebred black and white cows. And he knew we didn't have a farm to go back to. And we, for me, it was really about the only thing I really wanted to do. I wanted to work with my hands. I have kind of a high energy level. And uh, what was I gonna do? I worked for a few neighbors and, I, and after I realized I'd be a, a really terrible hired man because I, I want to do things my way. And so I, uh, we were able to start up on a small farm and, and just go back into it. There was a couple times it's like, really, is this what I want to do? Get up at 4.30 in the morning for the rest of my life or for, the, for my career, uh, Saturday, Sundays, Christmas, Easter, 4th of July. We work, you know, it's a full employment opportunity being a dairy farmer. And we said, are we going to do this? And uh, there was times it's like, really, I have to leave Christmas early to go back and milk cows, you know, and, and get to the house late, you know. And Debbie's not from a farm. And, you know, it took some adjustment for for her herself and her family to really understand the commitment that it takes. Over the years, though, we were able to to expand and get large enough to where we were able to employ people. And through that, through that, we were we could take turns having the milk on Christmas morning or Christmas night or on Saturdays or Sundays and rotate people around and really run it as a organized, more of a business model than just a, a, a dairy farm. Well, Debbie, I have to ask you then, what a transition becoming, you know, going from a non-farm kid to now marrying into this lifestyle. What was it like for you? Well, I, I, I went in with my eyes open. It, it was um, not unexpected. We dated in high school. I was in 4-H. A lot of my friends were farmers. 
maybe not dairy, but I knew about agriculture and appreciated it. And in fact, in 81, I was, uh, I took a job at, and I was selected as the 81, 82 Allison Dairyland. So really throughout that whole year, it's almost a brainwashing. You love farmers of all types, Christmas trees, uh, uh, dairy farmers, cranberry farmers. And so I was so immersed in agriculture and farming that when we finally did get married after that, it was fine. I was ready. I commuted to Madison to work, but it's it's still not easy, and it wasn't an easy time. Many people that, that milked cows or were in agriculture in the 80s would tell you that was a really tough time for farming, and, and it was, um, but we did fine. We survived. We had each other, and in fact, to George's point about learning to run the business different, um, in, maybe it was 88. I, I had an opportunity to travel on a Rotary Group study exchange to the Philippines with uh, four other businesswomen. And George, almost at the same time, had an opportunity to travel to Egypt with some other dairy, well, dairymen and agricultural people to help advise Egyptian farmers. So we were both gone for six weeks. And for George, especially George, to leave the farm for six weeks and know that it could run without him was such a big leap of faith. And it was good for both of us to see, you know, you can your whole businesses are replaceable or your jobs are, but, it, but you can still learn. It was a great learning experience for both of us. And that's kind of how we are now, where we love to travel and learn. We don't go to a meeting in another city, state, or country where we're not in a grocery store, cheese factory, or dairy farm. It could be in Northern Italy <laughs> or uh, po Portland, Oregon. We're out in the countryside looking for a farm or uh, Florida. I, I, you know, we just really like learning about agriculture. Well, talk to me about these worldly experiences because so many times people think farmers you know, they lay down the roots and they stay there, right? But you guys are, are, are learning from different farmers and those in the industry from around the world. What is that like to have those interactions? Well, it's very important. We, through, through 4-H, we were able to travel quite a bit and have different experiences and meet different, either 4-H members or leaders or university extension people from, from not only our state, but other states and really broadens a, a little farm kids horizon really and so we took advantage of that uh won some trips to to madison washington dc and were able to travel and meet meet some people but then it, through debbie's work and and through our really hunger for learning more we we traveled to california my brother tom and charlie and myself before we were even farming we traveled to california oregon and washington to look at some the, a different way that they farm out west um and went to New York to see how it worked, up to Ontario to see what how they farmed and what they did. And so we, we came back with a lot of knowledge, not only of farming, but really their, the economy, how they sold their milk, the environment that they operated under with regulations, irrig irrigation out west, non-irrigation here in the Midwest, uh, quotas in Canada. So we always were, were filling our, our bucket with this knowledge that eventually helps you steer our own operation, our own personal lives and our business on, on what we wanted to be uh, in the future. And, and through my job in the past, I was at the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture in international marketing. 
So I would drag George to a trade show once in Australia. South Africa, Australia, Argentina. It was fabulous. I'm the one promoting U.S. genetics or um, U.S. ag equipment. But George comes along, and he's the dairy farmer in the booth that can just talk about what it's really like in Wisconsin. So we were kind of a good combination, and we established such great <laughs> friendships with people around the world. Oh, especially in Italy, for example, we'll have... We have some Italian farmer friends there that will come to World Dairy Expo, and we get to see them um, during World Dairy Expo in Madison. But then we'll in turn go to Italy and visit them, and maybe they'll send us a picture of a dessert that they made with mascarpone, and we'll try that dessert here. And it's just a, a, a wonderful friendship, and certainly technology has helped. Uh, years ago when, when we were first uh, married and working, there wasn't the internet. God forbid, or cell phones, but we wrote letters. <laughs> Remember that? But we uh, we love it now. We have lots of friends worldwide, and I would say there's a great partnership. You sure learn from each other. We've learned how to host people better because we always felt that when we were overseas, we were hosted so much better than people take the time for in the United States. So when we have a group at the cheese factory or the farm, we really try to make it a good learning experience and to take take it seriously, to take time for people like they do for us because we've been brought into kitchens in Switzerland, sat down, eat cheese, talk about farming, and isn't that wonderful? Um, just irreplaceable experiences like that. Well, I wanna circle back to something you brought up, technology, because farmers rely on technology to, to keep building bigger and better and smarter. And, you know, George, talk to me about how technology has changed in your operation. Well, your listeners might be surprised, but we have tractors that drive themselves. They're, they run off of the satellites and, and they'll drive as straight as shooting a, shooting a bullet down the field and come back and move over just the right distance and move over and drive back super straight. So we have that and that makes the, the farming very efficient because of the planting just right and not overlapping a foot or two with your equipment or skipping a row with your equipment so it makes it more efficient that way and also tracking your yields off of the satellites and GPS global positioning systems uh, your yields and everything so that's in the field and then when those crops come in we plant very very modern plants, the, the corn, the alfalfa, the wheat, the soybeans are all the, the best that's ever been their ability to produce and yield. And we harvest those at the peak of freshness, store them, and then of course balance the rations off of using all the latest technology of, of creating just the perfect diet for the cows. And, and then the cows eat that feed and produce a lot of milk and the cows are even very modern technology where we test their genetics to find out who are going to potentially have the best ability to produce milk efficiently with the most butter fat protein and stay healthy and that's all modeled in a in a genetic profile that we're that we take for our cows and then of course we take the milk and bring it to the cheese factory uh, one of the newest things we have on the farm one of the newest equipment and technologies we have on the farm is a rotary milking parlor where the cows walk in they go in a circle and they travel on this big donut that's that's turning and the units go on uh to, to bring get the milk out of the cows and then the cows when they're finished the unit comes off they exit and go back to the barn to eat and drink and sleep 
And there's even a robot arm. Yep. Is, yep. And then a robot that sanitizes the cows when they come on, and when they go off, they sanitize the cows when before they leave the uh, the rotary parlor. So always using more technology, and it's just it's what we do, and we don't really think of it as technology. We just think of it as equipment. But then when you look at the the setup of it, and really with the time it's saving and saving labor and making the the whole farm run smoother. It's very cool. We even weigh all of our feed, and that's all sent by radio waves over a computer for tracking, you know, what group was fed at what time, and so we, we keep track of all that to make sure that everything's being fed properly and the, the uh, equipment's running properly and the diets are being formulated correctly. Yeah, I just think it's just amazing how fast technology has changed, because I look back at my own farm family, and, you know, my great-grandpa who walked behind a horse and plow you know, my grandpa who started using tractors and now, like you mentioned, my dad is using <laughs> equipment that's basically driving itself off of the satellites. It's it's just incredible to think where we are now and, and where we're going to be in the next 10, 15, 20 that's years. Right. That's right. It's, it's hard for us to think back that we've been really had about a 40-year career. We're just about almost retirement age now, but think of where we were and the you know Charlie, Tom, and myself, and how we used to harvest the equip the the crops and the meager yields you would get, and battle the the weeds. Um, and now, the uh, technology that we're able to use for weed control and everything else is is amazing. The crops are super nice, and we never dream of having the type of crops that we have today, growing the type of corn and soybeans. Well, you you started talking about milk, so let's jump into what you guys do best: making cheese. So. Cheese making 101, what makes great cheese? How do we do it? Walk us through this process. First of all, consistent milk, consistent milk. So we have for, for our cheese, it's fresh mozzarella, queso Oaxaca, and it's a, considered a fresh cheese. So we don't want the seasonality of our milk. Like some cheeses will, will celebrate the, the, the seasonality of the milk, the summer milk, the winter milk. Um, the higher butter fat in the winter time, the grassy taste in the summertime. We don't want any of that. We want consistent flavor. We don't want our customers to call us in January and say, hey, your cheese doesn't taste like it did in July. We don't want that. We want the same cheese. Our consumers expect the same cheese year round and our cows expect the same feed. So for us having our own milk supply, feeding the cows the same every day, the same feed day in, day out, almost year after year, gives us the same the same type of milk and then it's pipeline from the farm right to the cheese factory so it's not commingled it's not driven around the southern wisconsin and sloshing around the truck it's just brought right to the cheese factory and so that consistent milk makes very consistent cheese so our consumers expect that especially with a fresh cheese that we're really just trying to capture the, fr the fresh sweet crisp flavor of that fresh milk and how do you make cheese cheese making basically Oh, then we have to make the cheese. So the cheese comes, the milk comes up. Yeah, we got to make the well, cheese, Well, the consistency. Right? <laughs> what makes a good cheese is consistent milk. But then it's pasteurized, goes in the vats. We coagulate it. We acidify it with either citric, lactic, acetic acids to, to get the pH where we want it. This is all kind of industrial cooking. A lot of food science is very technical. To get the pH where we want it to soften the milk proteins so they stretch and they they melt so when they melt they stretch and it makes the the st stringy gooey cheese 
that we're able to mold into the Perlinis, Medallions, Siliginis, Ovalinis, Bocconcinis, all the Italian words for the little balls of cheese that go into the brine. <laughs> then we have to cup them up. So not only making the cheese, what we do here, but it's milk in the morning. And by some days, by 6, 30, 7 o'clock in the morning, it's already in a cup, in a package, in the cooler, cooling down to be ready to ship tomorrow or the next day. So break that break that timeline down again from milk to cheese how long well does we take? bring milk over at midnight my man kurt primo brings milk over at midnight and juan starts pasteurizing about one o'clock uh fills the first vat first vat comes down about 4 30 5 o'clock we're molding and cooking the cheese by 6 30 it's going into cups through the packaging machine and it, the cups all have the sell by date labels on them it has nutritional information the UPC code for scanning at the grocery store, our label recipe under the lid, and it goes into the cooler for cooling. And the next day, the guys pack it up and build their big pallets that are ready for interstate commerce. We'll sell this cheese from Miami to Seattle, from San Diego to New England. Every week, we have truckloads of cheese that go out of here that uh, end up going to markets all over the country. That's incredible, that timeline. Well, that's fresh cheese. Now, if it was cheddar, it would have to be pressed into blocks and then stored for six weeks, six months, five years to make the different ages of cheddar or, a, or a Swiss cheese or a Gouda type of cheese. Ours is a fresh cheese, so it's made, and we only make when we have the, the order. So every cheese we make has a PO on it or a purchase order and a zip code. And that's just the fresh mozzarella, a little different process for mascarpone. Mm -hmm. The mascarpone, we take some of the cream off the milk and process it up and cook it up and then cup it. And that's cupped at about 150 degrees, hot fill. And then it goes into the cooler for cooling. And then that uh, same thing goes out for national distribution. So on your website, it talks about how you use old world techniques. What does that mean? Well, I think the mozzarella is one of the, the cheeses that uh, Back in the olden days, they'd have wood-fired cauldrons, almost like they do still in the mountains in Switzerland in some places in Austria, where they'll take the, the milk and put it into this, this kettle. They'll acidify it and coagulate it, and then they'll use big wooden spoons to pull it out and stretch it and mold it. So we're still, we're still stretching and molding it, called pasta filada, and, and, but then we mold it into the balls using modern equipment but it's still old world ways of, of coagulating the milk, acidifying the milk and stretching it to, to mold it. Our Oaxaca cheese is really traditional where it's molded and stretched, but then we tie it, the, we have the, the ladies uh, out in the factory that tie it into the knots to where it's hand tied and tied into the knots into an eight ounce, 12 ounce, uh, three pound ball, almost like a volleyball of braided string cheese that we we sell tons of that a week and some plants might be so automated you know they can just push a button and make really great cheese so another part of that old world technique is we do have men leaning over a finishing table vat where they're actually scooping curds out of a vat to put in a cooker molder stretcher by hand so there's still a lot of hand labor involved in the cooking molding packing part of our cheese making and it's just part of our story so i'm hearing a lot of 
is this Italian words you're using? How long did it take you to master all of these well, words? Well, for being a dairy farmer, it was all very foreign to me because we were naive enough 20 years ago or 22 years ago when we started looking at leaving the farm and building the cheese factory is, is well, we have milk, right? So we have milk, so we might as well make cheese. We have corn and hay, so we might as well milk cows. So it's as big a difference between having corn and hay and milking cows as it is from having milk and making cheese and finding a market for your cheese too. Okay, you can make the cheese, but then who, you're, who are you going to sell it to? What's the market? So, so for about the first five or six years, it was really just developing those markets, finding a couple of key accounts, and we were able to do that after about three or four years, the key accounts that really get you in business and keep you in business. And we still are very proud that we still have those key accounts today. And as they grow their stores, we grow our business also. So keeping those key accounts when they go from 300 stores to 500 stores, we all of a sudden have increased our business that much also. So really it's the market that was driving the type of cheese that you were going to make as a family, right? right? We went out right away when we started looking at making cheese. And one interesting part that your your listeners will find interesting is we can't make blue cheese here because then our we'd have those that blue mold in our facility and it would, could cause cross-contamination or make our fresh mozzarella blue, okay? Might taste okay, but nobody wants fresh mozzarella. <laughs> we're not that we're no. not that creative. So we have to stick with the cheeses that we make. We don't make cheddar, we don't make gouda. So we just make the pasta filatas, the molded cheeses, the, the melted molded cheeses. And um, so that, that's what we learned. Another very interesting aspect to your family story is is the sustainability efforts that you've put into place. And, and one thing that is just amazing is the 100% green power that you use. Talk to me a little bit about what you're doing as a farm family to really, you know, put back into those natural resources that you're well, using. Well, right. You're, you're talking about our methane digester. And so the cows make a, a huge amount of waste. Uh, the number of cows we have and then the cheese factory waste uh, all goes back over to the farm where we have two large 750,000 gallon tanks uh, kind of looks like a water treatment facility type of tanks and we have the two of those and those are pumped full of all the waste from the cows in the cheese factory and it's heated to 105 degrees and stirred around and that creates a huge microflora of, of activity and creates methane gas we capture that methane gas and pipeline it to a huge engine, not an engine like that's in your car, only this engine is bigger than your car, and that engine turns a electromagnetic generator that, that generates enough electricity to power the farm and the cheese factory and about 300 homes in our local community. So instead of burning diesel or gasoline, to, to run the engine, we're powering it with methane gas. Methane is a highly combustible natural gas, so it's just like using a gasoline or diesel, only we're producing it off of our manure. So every day we pump more of the waste from the cows into those tanks, and it's, produ it's making the methane gas that powers the, the generator system. What goes in must come out, and what comes out is all the little fibers, and we separate that through a big juicer, and the, the liquids go into a, a fertilizer tank. That all those nutrients go back to the field. The nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium all go back into the fields to be recycled into next for next year's crops. And the little fibers that, that come out through the cow and out through the waste, those get dried with the methane also, and those go back underneath the, 
the cows for bedding. So they're all better with the little fibers from the hay and the corn and the wheat and everything that, that uh, escapes through the cows. So very recyclable, regenerative, renewable, whatever you want to call it. But And then Debbie made a nice little... Yeah, we have a logo on our cheese packaging called Produced with Renewable Energy. It's a little calf, if you will, with a green leaf tail. And we have that to promote our green sustainable story. We developed that over 10 years ago. And um, not even when maybe sustainability was so important. So we're really proud to have that little logo to showcase our story. Uh, through our cheese packaging. If you pick up a package of our cheese, you can tell, you know, we're a family through the family store, uh, the farmstead story. We're a farm. We're a, a sustainable operation. So lots of talking points. We're trying to put a whole lot of info on that cute little package. I, I just want to point out to our listeners because, you know, sustainability, I feel like, is a very big buzzword right now. And, and it's not just in agriculture. It's across the board. Everybody's talking about it. But in one of our previous episodes, when I was talking with a representative from Wisconsin Farm Bureau and, and, and another farmer from northern Wisconsin, you know, farmers have really been practicing sustainability ideas for forever. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's your livelihood because there's always ways to improve. Yes, but you have to keep putting back into into those natural resources to continue doing right. what you do. And I don't think people have given farmers enough credit for that over the years. I mean, farmers are the original stewards of the land. If they don't take mm -hmm. care of the land and their animals, they won't be there in the next year or two or for their children. So, of course, they're going to do the right thing. And most people are it's interesting they're surprised or, uh, you know, just unaware. And I'm, I'm proud of that legacy for all types of farmers, dairy, beef, corn, soybean. And it, it is a good story and a very good point. Yeah. Yeah, we're the original, we're the original recyclers, I like to mention to people when they come to visit us. And, and because what we bring in ends up getting divided up into the meat and the milk and the manure that goes back to the fields to to be the fertilizer for next year's crop. So we're the original recyclers and I like to tell people we were green we've been green before green was groovy, you know, before before it was really cool to be green and everything, oh that's so amazing, what a great idea. I'm like, I didn't invent a manure spreader, you know, somebody else has been doing this way before us. But we're just doing it but and then we're larger now and the farm units are are larger where we can do even a better job because we can really apply the the fertilizer back on the fields with prescription almost by precision because of the technology and the, what we do now so uh, we're doing a really good job out here and we're making a lot of food a lot of raw ingredients the pork the beef the chickens the grains the meat and milk for consumers and we're really a great inflation fighter too just because we keep uh, really making so much for so little I know we've talked about so much in our conversation already, but is, is there some nugget that you think consumers would just be most surprised to know about what you do within your family farm operation? I think that when we, we were able to host a lot of groups, so not only have we been fortunate to travel and meet people, but people come here through the 
dairy farmers of Wisconsin. We're close to Madison. They bring them out here on a bus. We'll walk them down the hall. We'll go to our tasting room, and Debbie will have some terrific appetizers for them to try that are made with our cheese. Then we'll get back on the bus, and we'll drive through the farm. And I'll explain what we do. And for me, and I'm not deep diving into the into the gruesome details of the, the science and the micro micro science of, of farming, but I'm just covering the basics, basic biology. We're just working with nature. I, I tell everyone, you know, we're, we're, they're, they're cows, they're mammals, mammaries, lactose, lactation, get it? These are, these are mammals, the crops, the rain, the soil. We're working with that, but, but we're working with it in a way that we're using so much technology. We're using so much biology and science. That, that's been fantastic inventions over the years. And they're really surprised at the amount of technology and science that we do use and that we talk about it. We use words that they aren't familiar with because of, of what we do. And um, I think that's what most consumers are really surprised at the, the detail that, we, that goes into farming today. So we've talked about the amazing cheeses that you guys make and consumers can relate most to these items through recipes so do you guys have a favorite holiday recipe or family traditional recipe that you like to make mm -hmm. using your products we have tons of them but yes <laughs> you know we do make a sweet cream mascarpone and we're well known for a famous dessert that we often serve to buyer tours that visit us and even family. I'll be bringing this to Thanksgiving, in fact. It's our chocolate mascarpone pie. And it's so easy. It's just chocolate mascarpone and the flavoring of your choice, like Kahlua, or if you're George, bourbon or whiskey. You add that and put that in a Oreo cookie or graham cracker crust. It's so easy and fun. So mascarpone is most known for tiramisu, and I'm Italian, but I don't even really like making tiramisu because it's so much work. And I guess what I'm trying to share is we have so many more fun uh, recipe applications and easy recipes on our website uh, that use mascarpone, even a mascarpone mushroom soup that's to die for in winter. Um, and we've had some recipe contests over the years where we've had great contest uh, entrants from chefs and consumers. And we have really creative ideas, like another one is a pizza that has mascarpone, candied bacon, sweet onions, figs. Um, and it's almost better than uh, tomato sauce, fresh mozzarella pizza, which we love also. And we do have some. I saw that recipe yes. on your website when I was looking through your recipe tab. It's oh, good. That pizza looks so good. I think we're going to have to try to make that in my house. But uh, we'll be sure to link so all of our consumers I hope can you do. get right to those recipes. I hope you do. We also have many fun uh, fresh mozzarella recipes, too. And it's wonderful for us to see how many people use fresh mozzarella year-round. It used to be our sales just went away after that first frost when tomatoes aren't so good. But now they're pretty consistent throughout the year. People still use fresh mozzarella on a pizza or a sandwich, and, and we're glad of that. But I think we have a little more fun with the mascarpone. And, and so I would encourage you to try those recipes. Also, we have a new cheese. It's, we still think of it as new, even though we introduced it at the end of 2019, really. It's our chocolate mascarpone. So it's already got Ooh. the chocolate in it. It's, it's wonderful for dipping high-end cookies or strawberries. And uh, it just won 
grand champion at the World Dairy Expo Cheese and um, Dairy Product Contest. So we're really thrilled with that. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. You can order it on our website if you can't find it in your store because it's not a lot of places. Well, that, that was my next question. We have talked about a lot of great product offerings coming off of your family farm there. Where can people buy and, and how do they get your products? You can order all of our cheeses from our website, cravecheese.com. We do have gift boxes, but we also um, have the opportunity for you to order cheese just on its own. Um, so please look us up there. And we are at select uh, specialty markets around the country, like Whole Foods, like Woodman's. But, you know, we're not everywhere. We're not trying to be everywhere. We're at specialty markets, we always say, where we should be, where it matters, where they care about the story, which is our family farmstead green energy story. Well, what does it mean to you to be carrying one of the most important roles in this world of, of feeding people? Um, well, we take, we don't take it for granted and the consumer shouldn't take their food supply for granted. We've just gone through the last year and a half of not a lot of fun, right? We've heard the news of all the, the shortages, all the hyper, hyper buying, hyperventilating, if you will, on the different issues in our, that are going on in our society. And a lot of those are real, but we haven't had to hear about running out of food running out of cereal, running out of meat, running out of milk, produce, carrots, beans. We haven't heard any of that, have we? We run out of shampoo and toilet paper. We've run out of other things. The store with the sports drinks, the shelves are all empty. But we, we go back and the basic food groups that, that are coming from our fields that are grown here in North America, we, we're good. We're good. They're not stuck on a container ship out, outside of Los Angeles or anywhere. They're right on the shelves. They're on the highways right now being delivered. And, and we don't take that for granted, and consumers shouldn't take that for granted. One term that came up a, a year and a half ago was essential workers. And Debbie says, hey, we're essential workers too. And we made sure that all of our employees knew that they were essential workers when they came to work also. So Yeah, they kept coming. It was tough. They didn't want to, but we were proud that they did. Mm -hmm. We're proud to be American farmers, and we're thankful for that. I, we love that, that poem, So God Made a Farmer. Okay, I think that summarizes it. That is a beautiful poem. It's one my family cherishes as well, being a farm family as well. So it is true. I love that. Good. Well, as our time here is winding down, I, I just want to offer you a chance to, to share any final thoughts with our listeners. Anything you think they should know? I would just share one thing. In 2022, we're celebrating mm -hmm. 20 years of making cheese. And wow, <laughs> that's a breathtaking accomplishment for George and I. We, this was a little bit of a leap, in, a leap of faith for both of us. And we're proud to be working on um, transitioning the cheese factory to the next generation, to some family members that are stepping up and it's going great. And uh, it's, it's a really great feeling. So we'll be having maybe a new gift box or a recipe contest or a special event. So maybe watch out for a few more things coming from us in 2022 to celebrate 20 years. Well, congratulations early <laughs> on 20 years, and we will definitely be following your story. You. Wonderful. No, we're very proud of it. Thank you. 
You're listening to Debbie and George Crave of Crave Brothers Farmstead Cheese, a dairy farm based in Waterloo, Wisconsin. Both of you, I just, I went from all of us here at Inside the Bullseye, we want to thank you so much for your time and talents to help put nutritional food on the table for all of us, but also doing it in a sustainable way to protect our precious resources. Thank you so much for what you're doing. You're welcome. Happy to do it. If you missed the previous episode of Inside the Bullseye, we talked with Lizzie Duffy of Dairy Farmers of Wisconsin, who offered three easy steps to make an Instagram-worthy cheese board, and maybe you can incorporate some of the cheeses we just talked about today. Also, there's still some time to submit your tasty creations for the Cheese Board Awards. That deadline is December 16th, 2021, and you can enter at wisconsincheese.com. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope after listening, you feel just a little more connected to the people and places that have made it possible for you to bring all of your favorite products into your home every day. Inside the Bullseye is available for download right now. Just click subscribe wherever you consume your favorite podcasts and catch a new episode featuring a new guest every Thursday. Don't forget, be sure to join the conversation as well. We'd love to hear from you. Follow along on Facebook and Instagram at Inside the Bullseye. You have questions, ask me. I'll get you the answer in a future episode. This episode of Inside the Bullseye wouldn't be possible without ABS Global. ABS is a bovine genetic company that's proud to partner with farmers in 70 countries all around the globe to produce nutritional animal proteins to feed the world. Thanks so much for joining us. In the meantime, be sure to thank a farmer.